welcome to another edition of The Moore Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. I'm Kevin Moore, and on today's show we're about to be joined with UFO researcher Chuck Wade. Now Chuck was only seven years old when a UFO crashed about seven miles southwest of Corona. He has known and been curious about UFOs for most of his life. Chuck received his bachelor's degree in civil engineering from New Mexico State University in 1968. He has spent four years on active duty and 26 years as a naval reservist. He owned and operated his own general contracting company for 22 years and closed his business in 1999 so he could spend more time with his two hobbies, UFOs and alternative energies. Chuck, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing just great, thank you, and I really appreciate being on the show with you this evening. So, Chuck, what sort of got you into ufology? First off, I was born and raised in the little town of Corona, New Mexico. And for those that don't know, Corona is right in the center of New Mexico and about 100 miles northwest of Roswell and about 30 miles southeast of Corona is where the Roswell incident occurred, the first UFO that we know of that crashed. And whenever it did crash there, a gentleman by the name of Mac Brazel, who is the foreman of the Foster Ranch, he found this uh, parts and pieces out there on the ranch, and he didn't know what it was. So he came to Corona to get my father to go out to the ranch and look it over. Unfortunately, Dad did not go with Mac, but I've heard about this basically all my life. So this sort of basis here, this sort of story that your father told you, um, was one of the key elements that got you into wanting to study ufology as a, as a sort of hobby. That is definitely correct. And then I had heard about this uh, verbally all these many years. And then in 1980, the book The Roswell Incident by Charles Berlitz and William Moore and researched by Mr. Stanton Friedman, it came out. And there it was in print about what I'd heard all these many years. So I became a student of the UFO phenomenon. Okay, so when we talk about the Roswell incident, we're talking about a crashed craft, apparently, that uh, crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, is that right? It uh, was about 80 miles northwest of Roswell. It's where the Roswell incident crashed. We'll call this the Roswell incident. Okay. It's the Corona Debris Field where these parts and pieces were scattered over a, a very vast area, hundreds of meters wide and, well, about a kilometer, more than a kilometer long, just lots and lots of debris. Was the Corona debris field, was, was, that, the field, was that the field where the first crash took place, um, if there was a first or second one? In reality, uh, Kevin, I think it was the second crash, uh, second, third, or fourth because the first crash happened two days sooner than the one at Corona. And it was over on the plains of St. Augustine, which is, uh, well, it's west of Socorro in the central New Mexico area, but it's uh, west of the Rio Grande River. And I do believe that was the first one that came down. Then uh, uh, two days later, there were three UFOs that crashed basically within a minute of each other. The one there at the Corona Debris Field, and one north of Roswell, about 45, 40 miles. And that one was basically totally intact. There's a hole in it, but it was basically intact. And then another one that was 53 miles 
west of Roswell. We'll call that the Jim Ragsdale site. And it was also intact with a hole in it. So there were four UFOs, not just one. So when people think of the Roswell incident, and, um, you know, if, if, if we were to, I don't know, watch a film on the Sci-Fi Channel regarding the Roswell incident, you're saying there's not just one crash as they always sort of talk about. There's a, there was actually five that took place in the same time frame. Or there were four in 1947 and one in 1948. In March 1948, there was a craft, uh, UFO craft, crashed near Aztec, New Mexico. And Aztec is in the northwest part of New Mexico, close to what they call the Four Corners, where right. the four states of New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona come together. Okay, now the four that crashed in uh, 1947, is the theory then behind those crashes, did they happen on the same sort of time frame, the same sort of days? That's, that's what I'm getting to. I mean, I mean what, how far apart were these, were these particular four crashes? Two days. Very close to the 2nd of July, 1947, a crash happened on the plains of St. Augustine, and then two days later, the night of the 4th of July, there were three UFO crashes. The Corona Debris Field crash, the crash north of Roswell, and the crash west of Roswell. Right. So when we talk about your father's story, um, and Matt Brazel asking your father to come along to the, uh, to the ranch to see what, uh, what had crashed, this would have only been one of the debris fields. Uh, and unbeknown to him, there would have been four others out there. That is correct. Dad never knew of the other. Well, he didn't know about the one in, in Aztec either, so Dad knew of one of five. Just going back to the original question, when people normally think of Roswell UFO, what particular crash site do they normally refer to? I would say they're referring to the Corona debris field, because right. that is really well known. Later on, we can go into detail of why it was well known. Sure, okay. So, going back to your father's story then, um, how well did he know McBrazel? Very well. My dad owned a, a bar or a tavern or a nightclub, or what do you want to call it? We call it a bar sure. where you serve liquor. And uh, McBrazel would come in and visit with dad for many years. And then uh, Bill and Shirley Brazel, uh, Bill is McBrazel's son, and Bill and Shirley lived in Alaska for several years, and then I'd say somewhere around 1945 or something, something they came back to New Mexico. And I've known Bill for many years. I also uh, knew Bill's brother, Vernon. Vernon is often mentioned in books, but they, we do not know what happened to Vernon. He just sort of disappeared. But uh, we've known the Brazels for many years. And did you know them as a boy yourself? Uh, yeah, I was seven years old in 1947. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So tell us the story then of, of what detail there is, really, of when your father was out, outside in the bar on, on that day, shall I say, and the sort of state that MacBrazel was in, and was he excited? Yeah, Dad, uh, and I can remember very well Dad standing out front of the bar because he ran it uh, many, many hours a day. And so in the morning, he would stand out in front of the bar there and get some sunshine. And he was standing there whenever Mac Brazel came driving in in his old pickup. And Mac was really excited of something had crashed on the ranch. 
and he really, really wanted my dad to go out and see what was there. But unfortunately, Dad turned him down. But also, Mac went up to the uh, drugstore there in town where they sell prescription and ice creams and all, and talked with the 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 people that own that place. And she uh, made a phone call to the sheriff over in uh, Chavis County. Turned out to be Sheriff Wilcox. So uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Perkins helped Mac Bradwell make a phone call yeah. to the sheriff. And she's told me that uh, in person twice. So he really was trying to get people to go out to see what was out there. And Dad suggested that uh, Mac go to the military because that's who he thought would need to know. Fortunately, Mac went to the sheriff. And that is very, very important. Right. That he went to the sheriff. So, I mean, did he talk about what he's seen out there? Or could he just kind of describe what he had understood that he had seen? I mean... Well, Dad never mentioned about that, but I have talked personally. My mother and I went out to talk to Loretta Proctor. And you'll read about Loretta in the books that uh, her husband Floyd and Loretta Proctor and their children lived just a very few miles, maybe 10 miles from the Corona Deep Reef Field. But my mother and I went out and visited with Loretta, and Loretta told mother and I about Mac Brazel coming to their house and showing, showing them the pieces that he had retrieved from that crash. There's metal and there's a balsa wood-looking stuff that really was uh, interesting to Loretta. For Floyd always had a very sharp knife, and he took out his knife, and he could not cut that, quote, balsa wood. He couldn't even scratch it. And then he took out matches, and it wouldn't burn. It was really perplexing to him. So I've actually talked to Loretta, and Loretta Proctor is still living at Corona, New Mexico, and I'm proud to say that. One of her sons lives here in the in the Gallup area, and I suppose they've been interviewed quite a bit extensively about the um, that that particular day, haven't they? I know that Loretta has. I've seen her on quite a number of different um, films that I've seen, and I don't know about the children at all, but okay. they were ever interviewed. So, and Dee Proctor, the gentleman, the little boy that was with Mac, whenever he found it, he passed away about three years ago now, and roughly five years ago, five years ago, Max son, Bill Brazel, passed away. Did they ever uh, sign an affidavit to say what they had seen? I don't know. I've never read one, I'll say that. Okay. You knew Bill. You, you, you knew Bill. I knew him rather well. Was he, was he making it up? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, uh, in the book, uh, The Roswell Incident, there is a picture of Bill Brazel, and there is a caption under the this picture, and I'll just read it to the audience. Sure, go ahead. Bill Brazel, son of the rancher W.W. Brazel, Bill's collection of the disc fragments was confiscated by the Air Force in 1949 after Bill had said too much the evening before in a tavern in Corona. That tavern they spoke of was my dad's bar. And whenever I read this uh, in the book, before I even turned the page, I called, I phoned Bill, yeah. He lived in Capitan, New Mexico, just about maybe 60 miles from Corona. And I talked to Bill for quite some time, and my father had just passed away a couple years prior to 
uh, this book coming out. My dad died in 1978, and the book came out in 1980. So Bill wanted to know how my mother was faring and just good things. And then I asked Bill, I'm going to read the article or the caption under the picture in the book, The Roswell Incident, and I did. And then I asked him point blank, Bill, is this true? And he said yes. I have been a student of the Roswell Incident and finding out what's in our skies of the UFOs since that moment. That was in 1981 or so. So that was the point that you turned around and said, you know, this, this is real. That's absolutely correct. Before, it was all hearsay. Here's the guy that actually saw and had parts of this this UFO in my dad's bar. I have no question in my mind. And I'm sure that uh, Loretta Proctor would not lie to my mother. No. Because my d- mother and Loretta were, were childhood friends. They went to school together. Okay. known each other all their life. Let's reverse this a bit. Let's look at the time frame that it happened in 1947. Now, th- th- these were people of a different era. And they were very loyal to um, to the country. And why would they lie, I suppose? I'd say absolutely no reason to lie about it. Uh, I would say, I mean, to tell us that something other than a UFO crash there. Yeah. Uh, if they were doing anything, they would have said nothing. Now, when Matt Brazel went down to the, uh, the, the debris site on the corona, did he ever talk about seeing bodies or... It's kind of mentioned that way in the uh, article that's in the uh, paper, the Roswell paper, and I believe it's July the 8th, 1947. Uh, he mentioned the body there, but uh, well, we just don't know much about the bodies at all. No, okay. There. So with um, with Matt Brazel, um, you, you mentioned earlier on that he had some Debras that uh, he'd maybe removed from the site and they were confiscated off him. That was Bill Brazel, his son. Sorry, Bill Brazel. Conf- yeah, Bill Brazel. And apparently he told, uh, or somebody listened in on the conversation there at my dad's bar that night, and then they must have called the military in Roswell or someplace, and the military came out to the ranch and requested that he they see what parts and pieces the bill had, and then they took it. Right. They asked him for permission to take it, and they did, and they never returned it. So as, do you know if anyone was even threatened by, um, by anyone for um, talking about this uh, subject? I mean, I would say definitely yes. I've, I've talked to him personally. And this was Bill that was actually, you know, told to keep it quiet. Uh, yes, I never talked to him about uh, being talk, uh, kept quiet, but there are other people that were told very definitely not to mention it. Right, so obviously they'd witnessed a lot more than what Bill has, had seen, or Bill's father probably. So we've got four crashes. This is very unusual. Um, planetary visitors from elsewhere having, um, you know, in a crashing. I mean, why would they come all this way just to crash? What's the cause behind them coming down all at once? Uh, I feel very confident to tell you that the United States military disabled these UFO crash crafts using high-powered radar intentionally. They didn't just crash on their own. They were shot down by the United States military. High-powered radar? I mean, were these were these portable radar? Were they fixed? I mean, where, where were these radars? Uh, I can tell you a little story about the uh, the radars. There were, whenever they put in the Los Alamos here in northern New Mexico... They made, the government put in three very high-powered radars to guard 
the skies over Los Alamos. There was one up by the Colorado border, one here in near Gallup at the Arizona border, and then one not too far northwest of Corona at a little town called Moerity. And in those days, in the 1947, they didn't have missiles, and they most likely didn't even have a gun that would shoot down a, a plane. But they put these radars in to shoot down planes and guard the skies over Los Alamos National Laboratories. What would a radar have done to a normal plane? It would mess then? up their instrumentation. Okay. Uh, and these were high-powered. They use radar now, but it's very, very low-powered. These are really high-powered things. And the radar that was put in in Moerity was a mobile unit, so it could be moved. And I think very strongly what happened. Uh, well, first off, the whole Roswell incident, 1947, happened only two weeks after Kenneth Arnold saw those eight or so crafts up in the northwest of the United States. And people really and truly didn't know what was going on. So a couple weeks before uh, they shot them down here in New Mexico. They knew that they were up in the northwest part of the United States. And also, uh, in July of this year, a Mr. or a Sergeant Earl Fuford, F-U-L-F-O-R-D, came forward and said that he was a military person stationed in Roswell in 1947, and he physically went out to the debris field. From that, Mr. Fuford was interviewed December the 3rd of 08 by Bill Burns from the UFO Hunter, and uh, Mr. Fuford said that there were three UFOs had flown over the Roswell, uh, at, at that time, Army Air Force. Uh, so he saw, physically saw, three UFOs go come over that base before any of the crafts were shot down. So the military knew that there were UFOs flying in our skies in the Roswell area. And they must have had a report that that UFO was flying on the plains of St. Augustine. So I think that they, the military took that mobile unit from Moerity, New Mexico, just south and a little bit west, to the plains of St. Augustine, and they set that unit up as a high-powered uh, shooter. And then they had, must have had several uh, low-powered radars that could track. So here came a UFO, also middle of the night. They, sh they hit that UFO with that high-powered radar, and it, it really disabled it. And then they took these small radar units and tracked it to ground. So they knew where it hit. And why I say that's important, because the plain to San Augustine is about 1,200 square miles of just mountains and valleys and lake beds and all that. The military showed up the next morning. Within 12 hours, the military was there with a fleet of trucks, cranes, tankers, and all that to gather up a crashed, a crashed UFO. Yeah. How did that happen in 12 hours? The place is massive. The, you know, it's a huge landscape, isn't it? We're not we're not talking a small, a small you know a couple of football fields here. We're talking um, the, the probably 1,200 square miles. Yeah. I have no idea how many kilometers. Yeah, it is, that, but it's, it's a lot. That's yeah, vast, exactly. So to turn up like that, no, they must have um, 
They must have been pretty prepared for what was about to happen. Tell us about the other crashes then. How quickly were they retrieved? Uh, the next morning was one of them. And there are eyewitnesses uh, on, let's say, the, the night of the 4th of July, 1947. These two kids were riding with their mother coming from Carlsbad, New Mexico, which is in the southeast part of New Mexico. And they were tra traveling at night because it gets really hot and they had no air conditioner in those days. So they got up close to Roswell and they had saw three major, major flashes in the sky. They could recall that the flashes lit up the mountains and just a vast area. And there were three of them. And that's really important because there were three UFOs that were crashed. And why I can say that is, and I will say that the first craft that came down was went to the Jim Ragsdale site, which is 53 miles west of Roswell. Jim Ragsdale and his girlfriend were spending the weekend there, north slope of the Capitan Mountains. It's a beautiful area. And it was about 11 o'clock at night or so, and they physically saw a major flash off to the north. And Jim worked for a pipeline company putting in natural gas pipelines. Yeah. And he uh, said that that flash was as, as bright as a welder's art. That is bright. Mm. And then they physically saw this craft coming in and crashing uh, right there within 100 yards of where they were, were at. And whenever it was coming in, it was uh, making all kinds of noises, and uh, it was very bright. And I think whatever creates the electromagnetic forces on that craft was still operating, but it was all shorted out. Uh, it was just all disabled, and it was just, well, like can maybe plug a, a plug in that you have a big flash? Yeah. Well, these flashes were just happening, and it was making a lot of noise like a, a spark does. Well, they physically saw and heard this thing coming in and crash. And then they waited a little bit and went over to visit with these guys. It turns out there's a hole in this this craft, and there were four dead aliens in it. And uh, I have a, a videotape of him, of Jim Ragsdale, telling his daughter, being filmed by his son-in-law, of what happened there. I have the tape. And okay. it's called Naked Truth. What were the next ones sort of after that? I mean... Okay, uh, the next morning, they went back, uh, Jim and his girlfriend went back over to the craft right after sunup, and they were gathering up parts and pieces of this craft, and they had two a tow sacks full or two gunny sacks full of these parts and pieces, and here came the military. How did the military find that craft overnight whenever my brother and I had a map and we almost couldn't find it? And that's nowadays. The military shot this, cra this craft down. They triangulated they knew it where it hit, and they came and got it the next morning. So that was the second craft that crashed. And then the Corona debris field, Mac Brazel reported it to the sheriff of, of Chavez County, uh, Sheriff Wilcox. And then uh, the Sheriff Wilcox uh, told the military there at Roswell Walker Base, and then here came the military. They went out there, and uh, there was just a lot of people involved. Uh, I know civilians that were went out there. I have a nephew. He was involved. 
uh, anyway, there's a whole lot of people knew about the Corona debris field. So let's call that the third one that crashed. But there's also the one that's north of Roswell, about 40 miles north of Roswell. And this craft is also mentioned in Colonel Philip Corso's book called The Roswell Incident. And what happened on the, the Roswell Incident, it was also shot down the same time as the Jim Ragsdale, the Corona debris field, and then this uh, one north of Roswell. But what happened is that some civilians found this craft, and they reported it into the military. And the military came out to that craft north of Roswell, and it was basically intact. There's a hole in it and four dead aliens. But it was basically intact. And the military immediately loaded that craft onto a, a flatbed truck and hauled it to the base, and we don't very little about it because the military hauled it off. But it wasn't very big. It was only about 14 to 15 foot long, not quite as wide, and about six foot high. And that's right out of the affidavit that Walter Hott made in 2002. Incredible. So we've got three there, and there there was one more, wasn't there, that we mentioned? The one on the plains of... Plains of San Augustine. San Augustine. Oh, uh, let me correct myself. uh, Colonel Corso's book is... The Day After Roswell. Okay. I'm not sure what I said, but it wasn't this. Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. Corso's book, you're saying, just um, specializes in the in the Roswell incident mainly, not the other three incidents that took place. Uh, it, it's very specific to the one north of Roswell. Uh, Colonel Corso was in the Pentagon uh, serving as the on the foreign technology desk, and a three-star general assigned Colonel Corso with a filing cabinet full of pieces, parts and pieces, that came from that UFO craft that crashed north of Roswell, about 40 miles north of Roswell. So that's why Colonel Corso was involved. He physically had parts and pieces of this craft in the Pentagon. Uh, He really doesn't know or did not uh, mention in his book about any of the other crashes. He was very specific on the one north of Roswell. And I'll call that the fourth craft that crashed. Now, you met Philip Corso, did you not, in your travels? My wife, Nancy, and I met Philip Corso, or Colonel Corso, uh, in Roswell on the 50th anniversary of these crashes in uh, July 1997. Right, okay. Now, when you met Corso, did you ever talk to him about the other three crashes that, that took place that day? I basically did not know about them myself in those. Okay. No, I did not know about them because, uh, well, the, the information wasn't out there. Wasn't out there, right. Okay. And when you met Corso, now we're, we're going to put a, a link for his book on our website as well, but when you met Corso, how did he come across to you? I mean... Oh, what a wonderful gentleman. Uh, I spent uh, totally 30 years with the Navy, Navy and um, just to be able to talk to a colonel and then a colonel of his statue and abilities are just wonderful. I mean, what's your views when someone turns around to you and you, you get to meet someone like that in your presence and they tell you, you know, that they've written this wonderful book the day after Roswell. How are they allowed to talk? What allows them to be able to disclose when, when they've signed the, the Official Secrecy Act? Uh, that uh, Secrecy Act has been, uh, it's been gone out of existence for quite a number of years now. That there is no Secrecy Act. Uh, people may think that, but it's 
officially does not exist. Would this have been the case for Corsa? I mean, how, how do you view his being able to talk about what he did talk about? Uh, he he uh, has no uh, right to secrecy. Or he has no reason to have secrets of this subject. Right, but nothing the military or the government can do to him. So you're saying the actual uh, Secrecy Act nowadays doesn't exist as it used to? That is correct, it, and it hasn't for quite a number of years. Good news, uh, Kevin, is that our new president has just signed a presidential order to declassify very much of the classified uh, items that the governments have. Before, we've had to go through a Freedom of Information Act and, and find papers and all that. Very hard to do. But with this new declassifying, the president said that if you have it, turn it loose. Uh, people do not even have to ask for it. If you got it, tell them. And I can hardly wait for the next year, two, five years on what's going to come out because the government has been studying and back-engineering UFOs for since 1947. Oh, now, I understand they won't turn everything over. Some of the stuff is um, should stay classified. But just the retrieving of a UFO should be declassified immediately. We need to know what happened. We'll come back to that. But just going back to the last subject as well, with the crash, the four crashes that occurred back in, in 1947... Were there any bodies that were recovered that were living? Were there any beings living out, out of these four crashes, or was there any talk of anything? The uh, craft that I'm very familiar with, and I physically have in, on my desk here parts of that craft, there were three dead aliens and one live, L-I-V-E, alien. And I have physically talked and shook hands with the gentleman that was there as a child, saying that that uh, there was one live alien at that crash site. Okay, and, and does he remember what kind of state it was in? I mean, was it... Uh... Yes, he was very, very agitated uh, and also very protective of his comrades that were were at that time even dead, but he was still protective. And never the military come up, uh, he was really became agitated, but he did not get up and leave. He stayed there with his comrades, but he was definitely alive. Incredible. What do you think happened to the, the, the recovered debris from the four crashes, and where did they end up? Kevin, that's a $64 million question. I wished I knew. But if I had to guess, and I will guess, that the plane to San Augustine craft went to California. I, I, I believe that very strongly. But I, I can't prove that whatsoever, so that's just an educated guess. Okay. Uh, where the others went, I absolutely do not know. Well, there's a lot of theory out there, a lot of speculation that a lot of this stuff went to Wright Force Air Patterson Base. Yes. Well, there is a good, very good chance that the small craft that, was, that crashed north of Roswell went uh, on site into a B-52 bomber, or whatever number it is, and went to, let's say, uh, Wright-Patterson. But I will tell you, I was in the audience on the 4th of July this year whenever Sergeant Earl Fuford was interviewed, and he was 80-some years old, and I uh, passed my condolences. He passed away in August, one month later. But Mr. Fuford said that he was a forklift driver and operator, 
and he physically took a very large crate from the hangar out to the runway where they would load it onto a, an aircraft. So there could have been an intact UFO with a hole in it that that he helped load onto that aircraft. I was in the audience and never said that. You did a, a dig in uh, June 2004, is that right? Would you tell us a bit of a bit about the, the dig that you did? Oh, I'd love to. Uh, in March of 2004, I went to the symposium in Aztec, New Mexico, which uh, they've been studying now for several years, where a 100-foot diameter craft came down intact, totally intact, and there were 16 people dead on that craft, 16 aliens dead on it. One of the speakers at the Aztec Symposium was a Mr. Art Campbell from the state of Oregon. Mr. Campbell was telling and showing parts and pieces that he had retrieved from the Plains of St. Augustine UFO crash site. And I was determined to make friends and did make friends with Mr. Campbell. And because I live just about 100 miles north of this crash, crashed site at a little town of uh, Gallup, New Mexico. So uh, I became friends with uh, Mr. Campbell, and we decided we'd make an archaeological dig at that gra- uh, crash site. And I volunteered to. Uh, to uh, hire a crew, and I did, of four men, and then my wife, my brother, and Mr. Campbell, and a couple other people. So there's nine of us there. And I made four tripods uh, with 12-foot legs and a big basket to uh, shake uh, dirt. And then these baskets have a screen on the bottom where it leaves the bigger pieces in the basket and gets rid of the dirt. And being this was a dry lake bed, there was an awful lot of dirt. (laughs) And uh, fortunately, some pieces. So uh, in May, we gathered up. The nine of us went down on the plains of San Augustine, set up our tripods, and started digging. And the first day, we dug just all big area, because we knew uh, where Mr. Campbell had found these parts. But we wanted to see if there's other areas that something might be in, because we... We just gave a lot of thought for it. Yeah, sure. We didn't find a thing out there. But then on Sunday, we uh, in the afternoon, after doing everything and all these dry holes, we set a, a tripod over precisely where Mr. Campbell had dug, and we immediately started finding pieces. And I physically have on my desk, as I talk with you, Kevin, and your audience, parts and pieces from that UFO craft. Wow. Again, let's remind our audience that crashed at the St. Augustine site in 1947. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say specifically July the 2nd. July the 2nd, 1947, right. Now, you say they're parts from a recovered... Well, uh, parts from the, from the, the crash debris. Two questions, then. One, uh, why didn't the uh, you know, U.S. Army, when they were... Um, brushing the sort of debris field, pick this up? Because, I mean, they must have gone over it with a fine tooth comb. I would say that they they weren't as thorough as they was were at Corona. Okay. And also, whenever this craft came in, it made a, a ditch in the ground, uh, a, a trench. And no telling how deep some of these parts went into the ground, you know, three or four inches or something, and they may not have been a visible because this thing landed with a tremendous amount of force. 
we have a piece that I think is the outside skin of the, the craft, and that thing is hard like you wouldn't believe. And it's just tore all to pieces. It just has a, let's call it, uh, well, triangular pieces sticking out of itself. And these things are turned back and flattened. Uh, it took a tremendous force to do that. So I think that they were just parts and pieces down in there that may not have, may not have even shown. And even if they did show, they were small, so they just took the shovels and shoveled and filled it up. With these parts of the debris that you say you, you have, um, which I've seen the pictures of as well, to be honest, um, did you get them analyzed? I've had them analyzed one time in cross-section, where the, the uh, scientist that did it, he stood the pieces up in a little dish and then put epoxy around them, and then he cut the dish off where it was flat, and then he polished that surface, and then he put it into a scanning electron microscope and looked at the the uh, center part of it. And my goodness, there's nothing made on this earth that looks anything like that. It's got it's about 91% aluminum. I'll repeat, 91% aluminum. But there are uh, particles of iron. They're particles. They were not heated up and melted and mixed like you would anticipate something being mixed, like a, well like you mix iron and aluminum. But these are particles, and they're, they're micron size, but some of them are up to three and four microns a, a, across. What is really neat is that this, uh, these foils are, are different thicknesses. Uh, they're all the way from less than 20 microns up to 65 microns, and that's really thin. Uh, about 20 microns or so is what your aluminum foil in your house is. But whenever you look at the, the side of that foil that's, let's say, 20 microns across, and there's a piece of iron in there that's two or three microns thick, the scientists call those boulders. And that absolutely tears up the way uh, aluminum is made by running uh, liquid aluminum out of a tiny, tiny little hole and then it spreads out and becomes foil. But with a great big old boulder of iron, it would stop up that little bitty hole. So they don't know how this stuff was made. Are the pieces that you've got, are they brittle? Are they light? What are uh, they? They're not brittle. They're, uh, they're, they, you can, you can uh, twist them and move them and wiggle them back and forth. And uh, audience, this metal does not come back flat like the metal that came off of the, the other three crashed yeah. over there by, by Roswell. This right here is crinkled. Or, uh, I think that they went ran, ran it through some sort of a crinkling machine and then physically took another machine and flattened it out because a lot of these bins are 180 degrees flat. So this stuff was, uh, was made to, to look like this. It just did not happen. And you can see this stuff very, very well on a Mr. Ken Lima, K-E-N-L-I-M-A. He's got a, Ken has got a photo bucket out in California that he's putting the pictures of this metal onto his photo bucket. And I think your audience would really enjoy looking at these. And uh, Kevin, can you put this uh, onto your website? Of course. This photo bucket. Uh, I'll give you the exact 
Yeah, I'll email you the yeah. very specifics. Uh, Kent is doing a marvelous job of putting this up where people can really see what was not made on this earth. And also, I've been talking about the iron. About 6% of that foil is iron. There is 3% silicon. And uh, what's really unusual about silicon being in aluminum is aluminum and silicon are basically incompatible. So where you have a piece of silicon, there's a great big old hole. So it cannot be used for a whole lot of things, like a virus or a bacteria you could get in that hole. So it could not be used in medical or anything, or a kitchen or anything. Uh, but anyway, you don't want 3% silicon and, and foils. Uh, the state, I mean, the standards for foils, like is in your kitchen, is like 98 or 99% pure. Yeah. Whereas this stuff here is 91% aluminum, 6% iron, and 3% silicon. And I've been in contact with uh, aluminum people like Alcoa Aluminum. I've been in contact with the Aluminum Association. They have not seen anything even remotely like this. So if anybody knows something about it, I'd love to hear. Hmm. And also, uh, I'd like to offer, if any of you folks has a laboratory that can look down to the nano size, I would certainly be glad to furnish you a piece of this metal to look at the nano size. That's going to be really important. But I can't find anybody to analyze it down to nano. So are we saying then that back in 47, that these materials, we wouldn't have known what they were anyway, so that it couldn't have come from that era? Is that what you're saying? No way it could come from that era because they don't, don't even know how to make it now. They, there's no way that this material could be made on this earth with gravity. Like that great big old piece of iron in there, well, it's out in the middle of that little bit of foil. That Let's say a 20, let's say a 30 piece of uh, micron size foil, which is not very thick. And you put a three or four micron piece of iron out there, it's going to go to the bottom immediately. Mm. But this stuff is out in the middle. Mm. So, I mean, has, has this invoked your interest to want to go back out there and, you know, dig up some more? I mean, uh, would you want to go back? I mean, it, do you think there's, there must be... <laughs> I would go this afternoon, but I'm not. No. Uh, actually, we did go back in '05. Okay. Uh, Mr. Campbell, uh, another engineer, myself, and an, uh, another gentleman. The four of us went out there on '05, and we were standing on site. We had just got there, and Mr. Campbell got in the emergency medical call that he had to return to Oregon. So Mr. Campbell and the engineer left the site after about two hours, and the worker and I, uh, Doug, well, we, we set up our tripod that evening uh, right above basically where we was at the year before, but we did not dig at all that evening. And then we went out the next morning, and we started finding pieces with, shortly on we dug for a short period of time, and we had enough pieces. Hell, we don't know how many is there, and we certainly don't want to dig them all up. So we yeah. stopped after just a yeah. couple, three hours. I know exactly where it is. I know there were pieces there, and there we left. I have pieces, and uh, we're not going to dig again until we can make a documentary yeah. showing the stuff coming out of the ground. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. Certainly do not want to uh, dig up all the pieces. No, no, not at all. Now, I read an article that you'd written um, a couple of years back now, I think it was, where you where you talk about um, 
UFOs do not need oil, why do we? Now, now you've got theories on alternative energy. Could you just sort of go over them briefly with us and what, what your theories are? Uh, yes, uh, I would be happy to. And it's snowing out here. Whenever we started this, clear, Incredible. it's snowing it, like it's, crazy It's snowing here. in New Mexico. <laughs> well, it snows a lot here. We're up in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, you're up in the but mountains. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, what my theory is, uh, that they, the UFO crafts run with electromagnetic energy. And this energy is a whole uh, section of physics that is not being taught. Absolutely not being taught. And we must go to a brand of physics called energy from the vacuum. And that is everywhere in the universe we look out and we see nothing like we can look at the, from here to the moon and see nothing. That area between us and the moon and the end of the universe is chalked full of energy. But it's in virtual form. Virtual means you cannot see it. You can't. You, well, it, for all practical purposes that we know stuff that's virtual, it doesn't exist. But it does exist in a form that we cannot see, measure, nor use. What we must do is find ways to use the energy from the vacuum uh, and uh, use it. In reality, we already do that. But the formulas and the way we look at science, physics, and electrical engineering is all totally obsolete, especially electrical engineering. You folks out there have been hoodwinked. If you're an electrical engineer, get out your books and burn them. And go and find the correct way to do uh, energy. Uh, the the uh, electrical engineer says the vacuum is inert, I-N-E-R-T, and that's a bold-faced lie, L-I-E. Hmm. What that is, that energy is, it's just massive amounts of energy. But the electrical engineering does not recognize it, therefore we do not use it as such. What we must do is use energy from the vacuum and and get on with solving our energy problem. And I know from study, from years of study, of how to make energy, electrical engineering, uh, electrical energy without using uh, oil. Mm. And part of it is going to be, why it's so important about the foil is, that foil is going to find out that that is the propulsion system of a UFO. Those little nano-sized particles that I've never seen because I can't get anybody to analyze it, those little nano-sized particles are going to start vibrating at some frequency, and they're going to draw in energy from the vacuum, become usable energy, and propel that UFO. And I think it's going to be as simple as that, to propel a UFO with the right frequency and, uh, well, just, you know, correctly engineered. Yeah. But that foil is going to be the propulsion system of a UFO. And was there any sort of backing that you got for this theory? I mean, what, is this theories that you've sort of, you know, recognized from other people's work and put it together piece by piece, or was it... Or... Uh, none of this is my original uh, theories. Uh, the theories I'm working with is a Dr. Tom Bearden. Right, okay. And his... Uh, website is just vast and it's phenomenal and I'll spell it, I can't pronounce it. C-H-E-N-I-E-R-E 
com. Okay, we'll put that on our website as well. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, Dr. Bearden and his thinking is just uh, phenomenal, and the people will just go to Dr. Bearden's website and solve these problems because we know the problems, we know the solutions, we just haven't got them together yet. We so, can solve this energy problem. So, do you think, from all the decades of having the uh, the saucer crafts, all the reverse engineering that would have took place, do you believe that um, we've um, uncovered some big truths from from the reverse engineering or do you think we're still struggling with what we actually have i mean being that i don't know the, the final project but yes i know for, i would wager they've been back engineering and i think that they have in the black ops stuff that we can't even imagine what they have and what we need to do is get it out for our use <clears throat> mm. rather than using oil we can use the energy from the vacuum and i will tell you uh what i discussed, or one item I discussed with uh, Colonel Philip Corso. Sure, go ahead. Uh, before Nancy and I got to Roswell in uh, July of 1997, I had already read his book, The Day After Roswell. And I was determined to find Colonel Corso, and I did to, uh, talk with him. And he signed my book and a book for the governor of the state of New Mexico. And then I started talking... I mentioned that I was uh, interested in alternative energy. And he said, I have something that I think would be of interest to the governor. So Colonel Corso sent me a package of information, so I became a courier for Colonel Philip Corso. And for you folks that can read that book there and think that that doesn't happen, up until now, did you know that I was a courier for Colonel Corso? But what I, one of the items I took to the governor... And I still have copies. It was in that brown envelope I gave you. And, uh, yeah. Was that uh, Colonel Corso was the commanding officer of a missile base on the north end of White Sands Missile Base called the Red Canyon Missile Base. And Colonel Corso was the commanding officer there in the mid-50s. And Los Alamos National Laboratory brought a large... He called, uh, Colonel Corso said it's about a six-foot cube, weighed about six-ton device to his base, and they dug a hole about 30 feet in the ground and buried this device, and the only thing that came out of the, the ground was electricity. And whenever they buried it up, and they they started it up, and he, they said that that, would, that device would, would uh, deliver or make electricity for at least 30 years without refueling or with no operation. And in that, for the next six months or so, that uh, device helped power his base. And then Los Alamos came back down and dug up that device, took it back to Los Alamos, and destroyed it. Colonel Corso, it really ticked him off because he said that device was ready to go to the market. Wouldn't it have been fun if we had had this powering device on the market since 1955, we have been taken for a ride, folks. It's time we get off that roller coaster and get our feet under ourselves, use the energy from the vacuum through the formulas and, and stuff we will come up with and stop using fuel to make electricity. So what was this device? I mean, you know, did, did he describe what he thought it was? I mean, uh, uh, In the information, he called it a reactor. But I, in my mind, think that it could not have been a reactor because absolutely the only thing that a reactor does 
that I know of is create heat. And any time you create heat, you have to have a cooling system to dissipate the heat to get it back down from steam to water to run through the steam cycle to get the, the power out of it to run a generator. The only thing these big old nuclear power plants are so proud of, the absolutely the only thing that power the nuclear does is create heat. It creates heat very efficiently, but there's not one watt of power made directly from nuclear power. Nuclear power only produces heat. Yeah. And therefore, this device that they buried on his base was not a reactor as we know it because it did not have a heat dissipating system. So uh, mm. I don't know what it was, but mm. I sure would love to know, and I think that, that we need to know. I think it's our money that we, the people, yeah. money that built that thing, I think we, the people, need to be able to use it. It's a complete shame that uh, Corso um, obviously died so early. Um, was it 1990 he died or 98? I can't. No, he died uh, one year after that. He died very specifically July the 16th, 1998. I would have. Um, it would have been fascinating to um, to have a sort of round table and to uh, interview and to have him included as well. I mean, what a guy <laughs> to have seen what he saw. Yeah, I fully agree. I, I talked to him a, a few times during that year, and then he had another package of information for the governor. And I was to meet him in Roswell in '98, and I talked to him just not too long before I went to Roswell. And I, I got to Roswell. Turned out he had had a massive heart attack. Wasn't there, obviously. Mm. But he died July the 16th. And what's so important about July the 16th? That was the same day of the year that uh, the United States detonated the first uh, atomic bomb, July the 16th, 1945. And then, like, uh, that was also the day my youngest brother passed away, July 16th, 1943. So there's a significance in the date in the date for you there, obviously. Yes. Um, well, we'll have to wrap it up there because we're coming to the end okay. of the hour. Um, but I'm mean, just just a couple more questions for you, and I've left these to the last, really, because I just want to get your reaction on on what you think of them. Sure. Chuck, what's it mean to you? What's it mean that we've been visited? I think it's absolutely wonderful. I I can't even conceive of all that space without life, and why would there be space without life? And I think we're all God's children, and we need to to communicate. And I really and truly believe we need to get along. We don't need to mess with those people in war and all that like we're stupidly doing that to ourselves. And I'm a career military. Uh, I, I just think it will be wonderful whenever we know what those people know and they know what we know. But I think they know a lot about us because... Yeah. If, it was, uh, if I was to guess, I would say we are them. I do not believe in evolution on this earth. I think that we were planted here, and uh, they, we could be their ant farm, or we could be their neighbor. They're looking out for us. But I, I fully can hardly wait, and I hope that I will stick around long enough to know, absolutely know, What's in our skies? Well, I, well, I hope. Seventy I hope. years old now, so <laughs> I, 70, I hope that it'll be rather soon. Seventy years younger—that's what you mean, Chuck. Yeah, and I feel great, and I'm, yeah. I really, really appreciate being on this radio show. 
some people find it very hard to conceive the, the difference it would make to, to their life on an individual basis to know that, you know, that we've, they've been here already and that we have been observed. What could you say to those people who find it very difficult to come to grips with, you know, well, what's it mean for me, really? You know, what, what difference is it going to make in my life? Uh, I would say get your head out of the sand just like an ostrich. I, I just don't understand, and I wish to, well, I don't even want to know. They are just out of touch with reality because those folks are here and let's learn from them let's use their technology and getting us off of oil there's so many things that we could learn from those folks and uh, it would just set uh, science ahead maybe hundreds if not thousands of years and we're going to be on this planet for a long long time I would hope Yeah. and we must stop polluting it I don't believe in global warming at all. That's the, that whole thing is a cycle. But we need to stop polluting our air. That's idiotic to continue polluting our air. That doesn't cause uh, global warming, but it will hurt everything. It hurts everything. Let's stop polluting. But also let's not spend all this money on global warming trying to change the weather because we can't change it. We can certainly adapt to it. And there's where our money should be. But we need to... Absolutely, get with these folks and become friends, like Mr. Campbell and I did. Okay. A lot of good came out of our friendship. Well, look, Chuck, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, and uh, we'll definitely get you back on again in the future. It will be my pleasure. It's your, I'm, I'm at your beck and call. To find out more on Chuck Wade, go to my website, themoreshow.co.uk, and uh, look up Chuck under past guests. There you'll see the pictures of some of the uh, metal debris he talked about and uh, some other links as well. So until next time, if you haven't got your copy of UFO Matrix magazine, remember it's hit the news agents now, so uh, please do support it. Uh, and until next time, be safe. <laughs> <laughs>